Good morning. It's a blessing to be in the house of God together. On the day that God has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Awesome. It's a blessing to see some uh, faces I haven't seen in a while. Danielson, good to see you. How's your mom doing? Maybe I should ask you this on your own. <laughs> Been praying for her. Anyways, yeah, we'll keep your family in prayer. Uh, you know, we are um, blessed to be part of the body of Christ. And uh, as was mentioned at the beginning of our prayer time, if you are just in need or feeling the, the need of the prayers of those you love, uh, we do have prayer warriors that will meet um, in this room back here just to, immediately after the service. So maybe there's a burden on your heart that you're just longing to pray for, or you just need to know that someone is praying for you and with you. Um, that's going to be available every week now um, by the grace of God. Thank you to our prayer ministries for making that happen. All right. Hey, Discipleship 101, this is our third part in the series. If you don't have a Bible near you, um, go ahead and start looking for one, or maybe on your mobile device. We're going to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Continuing our series, if you remember, we saw in Matthew chapter 4 the very familiar scene of Jesus calling his disciples to follow him. Right? They follow him immediately. They leave their nets behind. They even leave their father behind, some of them. And they follow after Jesus. And we were asking the question in this series, what does it really look like to be a disciple of Jesus? And the book ends of that very picture of the beginning of Matthew chapter 4 as well as the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. This is where we're looking for our cues to understand what are the trademarks of discipleship? Are there certain experiences? Are there certain habits that make the life of a follower of Jesus? So far, what we've looked at, uh, we've looked at the, the discipline of following Jesus into the wilderness. You all remember that? Following Jesus into the wilderness, meaning following Jesus into distraction-free time with God. Yeah. Following him into time alone with the Savior daily. We've also looked at the discipline of living by the word, immersing ourselves in the word. These are experiences that every follower of Jesus, when we're really following him, this is what will be a part and parcel of our lives. And uh, I, I hope and pray that this idea of time alone with God, spending daily time in his word, is more than just a flavor of the month. Amen? Like, I, I, I hope that we're not just talking about this as some nice idea that maybe some people should try. No, no, this is something that Jesus invites us into when we say yes to following him. And I wanted to put this on the, on the screen. I mentioned this um, last week in the message, that if you're desirous of making sure that time alone with God and time really digging into the word for yourself, not just once a week or not just when someone else speaks to you, but when you're opening the Bible, just you and God, um, if you're interested in actually experiencing this on a, on a more sustained level and encouraging others in a group setting to keep abiding in Jesus, we're starting a small discipleship group um, it's going to actually start on September 21, I think. Uh, man, anyways, I have invitation cards. If, if you are interested, please see me afterwards. Before you buzz away uh, to your lunch plans, before you buzz away to the prayer room, please see me afterwards. I, I would love to have you a part of that group. It's going to be a 10-week journey together with just, we're maxing out at 12 people. And I've already spoken with a handful of people who are seriously considering it. And so if that's you... I hope and pray that uh, we'd be able to connect with one another. If you're watching online, you're saying, I want to be a part of that discipleship group, um, please 
send, send me an email, pastor at fcsda.com. Okay, so that's my shameless plug. We're going to get into our series, Discipleship 101. And today we're turning to the Sermon on the Mount. If you're in Matthew chapter 5, go ahead and say amen. 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 All right. Hey, let's pause for prayer and we'll dive right in. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God who does speak to us. And that when you invite us to follow you, you are inviting us into a relationship with you that is real and daily. And so I pray, Father, that as we study these famous lines of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, that this would, just, that this would be more than just information, but that this would result in our transformation. Please send us your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Let the family say, amen. Amen. All right. So trademark number three, if you will. We're going into Discipleship 101. What are the trademarks, the hallmarks of a discipleship experience? Not just following Jesus into the wilderness or immersing ourselves and living by the word. But today, part three is the blessing of having nothing. The blessing of having nothing. And maybe you're chuckling because you realize, wait, 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 wait. That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> when I have nothing, I don't feel blessed at all, right? In fact, if we were to kind of take our cues from the world, the rubric of our cultural values places its favor upon those who have everything. When you've got it all, the more you have, all, oh, the more blessed you must be. More wealth, more possessions, more power, more position, more beauty, more charm. Wow, you are blessed. But I would submit to you that maybe there's a blessing in having nothing. Uh, how many of you remember this store? Payless Shoe Source, right? Maybe you remember, maybe you remember, actually, they used to have a different logo. It was a little more yellow lettering and things like that. This is uh, where common sense individuals would go to buy common sense footwear, <laughs> How many of you have heard of this brand, Palessi? Yeah, this was a, you haven't heard of it? It's because it's a fake luxury brand that Payless, can you get it, Palessi? That Payless actually created a temporary store in Santa Monica. This is back in 2018. A few years, uh, actually just a year before Payless actually went bankrupt, I think. <laughs> um, but Payless is making a comeback in case you're interested or you feel some sort of sentimental value there. Um, anyways, Palessi, it was a fake luxury brand store, temporary opened, uh, temporarily opened in Santa Monica, and about 60 or so fashionistas, you know, fashion influencers, were invited to its launch. And uh, these individuals came. They were so excited. I mean, you look at it. It looks, looks pretty snazzy. And the reality is that what they stocked the shelves of Palessi with were Payless shoots. <laughs> And these fashionistas were interviewed, you know, during this amazing store launch and stuff. And, you know, people were, like, noticing the genuine leather and the good craftsmanship. And they were paying four, five, six hundred dollars for $30 and $40 shoes. More than, like, 1,800% markups. And then, you know, on camera, they were told, did you know that this is actually a Payless shoe? And uh, it was a social experiment that people got their money back and stuff. But it just goes to show that more is not always better, right? In, in, in other words, it's possible, very, very possible to misjudge the value of things. Uh, 
not just in terms of material, commercial things, but also in spiritual things. You hear what I mean by that? Yeah? In fact, um, I was reading this in Desire of Ages. Ellen White's talking about the time when Jesus was declaring these things from the Sermon on the Mount. And she describes the people in Jesus' day like this. She says, The multitudes were amazed at this teaching, which was so at variance with the precepts and example of the Pharisees. The people had come to think that happiness consisted in the possession of the things of this world, and that fame and the honor of men were much to be coveted. You see, Jesus' audience had begun to equate certain marks of prestige and power with being under the favor and blessing of God. But sometimes less is more, right? And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' opening line sets the record straight of what is of real value to God. So there, in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start reading this. And just a little bit of a runway, you know, prior to this Uh, this inaugural speech, so to speak, people are starting to recognize who Jesus is. In fact, the last few verses of Matthew chapter 4 give us this swell of popularity. There's this picture where Jesus' popularity is really picking up. His stock is rising in the public eye, so to speak. And people feel as though this, whatever is going to be declared by Jesus on this on this occasion from the mount, that it feels like this is going to be establishing the principles of this kingdom that is at hand. You know, Jesus has been preaching. This is his itinerant message. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So people are starting to recognize, oh, whoa, there's a kingdom. There's a kingdom at hand, and this man is going to lead us there. And so you can imagine that as the crowds gather that day, there's an anticipation that's spreading like wildfire. People's eyes are glazed over with visions of political freedom, glazed over with uh, just desire for economic prosperity, social exaltation, bragging rights, you could say, over their oppressors. Man, they could see it all. And they wanted it all. But then Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Man, when Jesus speaks these eight declarations of blessing. He's declaring God's divine favor over certain conditions of life. And this is completely opposite. It turns upside down the very things that everyone else thinks are blessed. This word blessed, some versions translate it as happy are. But really the the meaning there is this life is under God's favor. This kind of condition has divine hand upon it. It's enviable, you could say. But what is so enviable about it? As we study, we're actually just going to work through the first four of the eight Beatitudes. Next week, we'll go through the last four. But as we study this first half of the Beatitudes, we're going to find a common thread that weaves through it all. And these are four conditions of lack. Do you hear me? 
four conditions of missing something, being without something. And that's why we're calling it the blessing of having nothing. The blessing of having nothing. And the first one, it's poor in spirit. What is it that they're lacking? They're actually lacking spiritual riches. Let's go there. Verse 3, the Bible says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? Is the kingdom of heaven. The word for poor here is actually very graphic. It's a word that's derived from a, a verb that means to crouch or to cower over like a beggar. It's describing the kind of destitution that is so deep that it literally doubles someone over because of their lack of wherewithal, their lack of strength and sustenance. They feel like they are completely lacking resources. And by all appearances, this is far from blessed. When you're in that poverty, destitution state, you do not feel blessed or look blessed. But what kind of poverty is being described? What kind of poorness is Jesus referring to in verse 3? It says, blessed are the poor in what? In spirit. So it's not just talking about being poor in, in, in your checking account, okay? It's not just talking about being poor in your retirement, your 401k, whatever, whatever it is that you're placing stock in. It's talking about being poor in spirit, being spiritually bankrupt, your spiritual pockets empty. That's why we're describing this as lacking spiritual riches, in other words, it's when we get to that point that we realize that we're not hot stuff after all. And that before God, we have nothing to offer, nothing to, to recommend us to him, nothing to bargain with. Lacking spiritual treasure that we're bent over and we can't even stand straight. Do you remember the parable that Jesus tells of a man just like that? In Luke chapter 18, you remember this? It's a parable of the publican and the Pharisee. Luke chapter 18. And these two, uh, the, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee, they, all show, they both show up at the temple wanting to come before God. And the Pharisee is so grateful that he is not like other men, including the person that's standing not too far from him. Oh, I thank you, Lord, that I pay tithe and that I'm all of this and I'm all of that right? And then there's this publican, and he can't even look up to heaven. He's off to the corner, and he's beating his chest, saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You want to know what poor in spirit looks like? It looks just like that. When you're so bent over by the weight of your own sin, maybe you've been there. You, you, you feel broken over your inability to overcome sin, your inability to be free from the burden of guilt and shame. You realize that sin is too much for you. And Jesus says, when you feel that, you know that your spiritual bank account is at zero. Yours is the kingdom. What? <laughs> Why is that? It's because the sick know that they need a physician, right? Jesus came not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. 
And Jesus says, when you're like this, you are blessed. When you feel like you've got nothing of yourself to depend on, then you and I are a prime candidate to depend upon God. When you don't feel like you're in possession of anything, you're actually in possession of the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. I was just talking with actually two different individuals over the last couple of weeks. Just have, you know, some time to to counsel and pray together. And, and, you know, different situations, different circumstances. But the common theme was, man, I, I just don't have what it takes. I know that I want to walk in a different way than I'm walking. To be free from this sin that has been plaguing me for decades. And I want to be free from this, but I can't. And out of frustration, does that mean that God has forgotten me? That God has abandoned me? Look, I want to tell you, when you experience that, the fact that you experience that conviction is evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. And you are a prime candidate to no longer depend upon yourself, but to depend upon the only one who can save. And his name is Jesus. For a disciple of Jesus, that is the blessing of having nothing. Yeah. Amen. All right. Keep going. Verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, wow. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And maybe, you know, maybe you've been following the news and and the loss of Queen Elizabeth. I mean, there's a whole nation. There's a whole kingdom that is mourning right now. Maybe you are in your own valley of the shadow of death. No matter how recent or far distant that incident may be, that loss may be, man, you know that mourning and grief, it it comes like waves and it feels so fresh. Praise the Lord for this promise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want you to hear it today. If you're in a heart state of mourning, God's blessing is upon you. And his comfort is assured to you. Yeah. The word for mourning here is, yeah, it's that feeling of lament. It's that feeling of grief over a death or a loss of some sort of significance where you feel like hope itself dies. It's talking about the grief that can't even be hidden that can't be hidden behind a smile because it's that kind of grief that's so manifest that it just comes out. But the powerful assurance is that, how does it say at the end of verse 4? For they shall be comforted. And this is a a, a grammatical thing in in the Greek language when it's a a passive voice. When When promises are given in the passive voice, they shall be comforted. It's what's known as the divine passive. You're not sure where this comfort is coming from, but the way that the Bible writers use this, instead of identifying directly God will comfort you, they use this divine passive to imply that only God can and will comfort you. So while we may mourn over all kinds of tragedies, you know, whether it's the physical loss of a loved one, the loss of maybe a very important relationship, a broken relationship, or a hope that is dashed, The reality is that when we read verse 4, we should also read it in connection with what has preceded it, right? We should read it in connection with verse 3 that's talking about poverty, not just in material things, but in spiritual things. And so when we're talking about this mourning, this is more than just mourning over outward things. 
but mourning also over inward spiritual realities. In other words, this mourning is related to our spiritual journey. It's related to the spiritual poverty of verse 3. In fact, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings calls this mourning true heart sorrow for sin. Do you hear me? So this isn't just mourning over, and I shouldn't say just because that sounds dismissive, but it's not only mourning over the loss of people or things or relationships, but it's truly sorrowing over sin itself. There's a verse in Zechariah. This is, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, if you're going to write this one down. Um, this is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. The Bible says, then they will look on me. It's a messianic prophecy. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. I mean, you could, just that last phrase, you, you can't even imagine maybe uh, just the kind of grief that would overcome someone when they lose their only child or their firstborn child. And so this mourning is actually connected very directly. It pictures this kind of mourning as the result of seeing Jesus pierced. In other words, this Old Testament prophecy is saying, hey, when we look to Jesus and see him suspended between heaven and earth, not for what he has done, but for all that we have done, wounded not for his transgressions, but for our transgressions, when we look on Jesus on Calvary's cross, we will mourn. We will mourn. Looking at the cross, the true disciple weeps over his or her shortcomings. Shortcomings that put Christ on the cross. So this second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, who, who have this sorrow for sin. What kind of lack is so blessed about that? What kind of lack is such a, a blessing that we can be certain of God's divine favor? Hear me out. When we mourn over sin, whether in ourselves or in the world around us, it is because sin has lost its charm. It's because sin has lost its glamour and appeal. In other words, disciples of Christ are sensitized to the sinfulness of sin. When we look to Jesus on the cross and we say, oh, that's what our choice to rebel against God has cost. And so what is so blessed? What is the lack that is so blessed? Those who mourn lack a relish for sin. They lack a draw to it. Oh, this is not what I want any longer. And when we feel that lack, when we mourn over our sin like that, any comfort then can only be found in God and his grace. Yeah, that's the blessing. That's the blessing because uh, we're starting to see the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God would put enmity between us and Satan. That sin that, is so, that we are so naturally drawn to, when we start to feel a sorrow and a hostility against it, when we mourn against our sinfulness, then we feel a lack of a draw to sin. Praise the Lord. That is a miracle that only his grace can work out. And that is a miracle that only his grace can resolve. Yeah. All right. So these are the blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Here's verse five. Blessed are the meek 
for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I don't know what your associations, just with that word, meekness, is. And a lot of times, I think, uh, just in common vernacular, just the way the world sees things, the world sees meekness and equates it with weakness. But I would submit to you that weakness is not that. That the word meek is referring literally to gentleness, humility, being unassuming, if you will. So it's not complete passivity, but it's choosing not to use our strength for our own ends. Do you hear that? So meekness doesn't imply the absence of strength. It implies the humility to choose to lay strength aside so that we don't use our power for our ends, but for others' good. I don't know if I'm just kind of talking in circles here, but I hope we understand that this meekness then is not weakness. In fact, Jesus is the prime example of this kind of meekness. And the Bible says that the blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. This is really interesting because meekness in this flow, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. I don't think Jesus is just kind of randomly picking out fortune cookies and reading, okay, oh, this is, this is a good one that you need to hear. No, he has, he has thought this through. He's giving us an experience of steps to the kingdom. That, that's what he's doing. He's outlining, how do I experience the kingdom that is at hand? How do I become a part of that kingdom? Well, it starts with realizing that you got nothing. And then that what you have been attached to is so heartbreaking that it put Jesus on the cross. And you start to realize a sorrow for that. You mourn. And then the next experience is that we experience meekness. In other words, it's a voluntary stance of humility, a a laying self aside that is not willing to strive or reach for things anymore, but is just content to let things come to us. In fact, I love the promise that's attached to this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall, what's the next word in your Bible? For they shall inherit the earth, right? Inherit the earth. This This is not blessed are the meek, for they shall earn the earth. For they shall grasp and finally get what they're entitled to. No, it's an inheritance, meaning that they're waiting for it on God's time and in God's way. Yeah. In fact, that, that word inheritance, it, it implies a certain relationship with the one that gives the inheritance. Right? We're, we're not just uh, you know, underlings. We're not just servants of the kingdom. We're sons and daughters of the king. And we have an inheritance that's coming to us. So when we're talking about meekness, what is it that that we lack? What is so blessed about this lack? The meek lack an aggressive ambition to fill their own needs. That's That's what's missing from the meek. They lack this aggressive ambition to get and to fill our own cups. We're not trying to earn it. We're not trying to to grasp it. We're just waiting on God to give it. See, the true disciple takes this unassuming stance of a quiet trust and confidence in God that looks to him alone to secure our needs and when we need it. To trust that God will provide in his own time and in his own way. Man, that's humility. 
That's meekness. That's the blessing of having nothing. But there's a fourth one. The fourth one is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I don't know when the last time you felt hungry and thirsty was. <laughs> but when you're feeling hunger and thirst, you surely don't feel blessed, right? When you're hungry and thirsty, it's, it's your body's way of telling you you're missing something here. You're desperately in need of something here. To feel hunger and to feel thirst is to be famished, to have this intensity of craving and a desire earnestly because you're missing out. You're lacking. So what is the lack in this beatitude? Hunger and thirst. Those who hunger and thirst. What's the lack in this that is so blessed? Let me ask you, what specifically are, are they hungry and thirsty for? What does it say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for? For righteousness. What is the lack? They are lacking their own righteousness. They're lacking their own righteousness. And what's interesting here is that the verbs hunger and thirst, they're actually, they're better translated. Blessed are those who keep hungering and who keep thirsting for righteousness. And then the promise, for they shall be filled. I tell you, when we are poor in spirit, when our spiritual accounts are at zero, and we start to mourn over the sin that put Jesus on the cross, when we just kind of humbly say, I cannot get this on my own, so I will wait for God to give me what he wants, then we will start recognizing that our righteousness is like filthy rags, and we will hunger and thirst for a righteousness that has no human devising woven into it. And again, there's a divine passive here. I don't know if you saw that in the promise. For they shall be filled. You and I can't fill that on our own. I hope you hear me. You and I cannot fill that on our own. <laughs> we may try, but only God can give it. Christ is our righteousness. So the promise here is that when we feel this lack, we will be filled. We will be satisfied. God himself will supply this need. So these are the four lacks that are such a blessing for every true follower of Jesus. Man, is there really a blessing in having nothing, being so keenly aware of our need? Yes, indeed. In fact, I would say that there is a curse for feeling like we have everything. Do you follow me? <laughs> hey, go with me really quick. So yeah, we're going to leave Matthew. Go to Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. And this is exhibit A of the very opposite. Revelation chapter 3. The end of this chapter, this is actually the end of the section where Jesus is addressing messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And the last one he addresses is the church in Laodicea. And in verse 17, here is what the faithful witness says to this group of people who have professed faith. He says, because, I'm sorry, are you there? <laughs> Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. amen. Okay. Verse 17, red letters in my Bible. Jesus is directly addressing these believers. He says, because you say, I am rich 
have become wealthy and have need of how much? Need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Here's the thing. It is very possible to profess Christ, but to have no need of Christ. Have mercy. But a true follower of Jesus, when we are in the journey of discipleship, we will constantly sense that I have nothing and he is everything. As long as we feel that we have need of nothing, we will keep Jesus at arm's length and it will be impossible to follow him. And so Jesus, the faithful witness, is trying to let them know what they don't know. And his counsel to them is to buy from him the real riches, the real garments that cover, the real spirit that gives vision to the world. Man, in our journey of discipleship, Jesus invites us to embrace the blessing of having nothing. This is the third hallmark of a true follower of Jesus. Following him into the wilderness, yes. Following him and immersing ourselves and living by the word of God, yes. But also cultivating a heart that constantly senses, I have nothing, but Jesus is everything. Yeah. A heart that lacks overconfidence in ourselves. A heart that lacks a relish for sin. A heart that lacks a prideful drive to grasp and fill our own needs. A heart that lacks our own righteousness and hungers for God's alone. And what is the result in verse 20? Uh, Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. This is Jesus' invitation to those who, who need a turn from their sense of needing nothing to finding in him everything. Verse 20, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Friends, when we have the blessing, I'm sorry, when we've found the blessing of having nothing, that's when our heart doors will open widest to the abiding presence of Jesus. So long as we keep following the script of Laodicea, ah, I got it all, I'm good, I'm good. So long as we keep following that, guess what our heart doors are? <laughs> They're closed to the Savior, absent from the abiding presence of Jesus. And so, simple question, how many of you long for the blessing of having nothing? Yeah, amen, me too, me too. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. I was claiming this in prayer throughout the week. The Bible says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And then the, the rest of that says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I want to testify just exactly what Paul testifies here. That God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. Let's let go of any self-delusion to think that we've, we've got things taken care of. We're, we're good to go. No, 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 no. 
in our weakness, only in our weakness, his strength can be made perfect. So let's boast in those infirmities that the power and grace of Christ would truly rest upon us. So I want to just extend this invitation. If you're tired and broken within, if you've come to the end of yourself, find the blessing of having nothing. And may we find that blessing of having nothing of ourselves so that we can find that in Jesus we have everything. Yeah. Is that your desire today? Yeah, me too. Me too. You know, it's strange because everything in this world moves itself in the direction of independence. You know, when you're raising your children, you, you want them to eventually be able to feed themselves. You want the, them to be able to take themselves to the bathroom, you know, different things. You want them to be able to drive on their own. Maybe you don't want them to be able to drive on their own. Uh, but everything in this world kind of moves toward independence. But I want to tell you that the journey of discipleship moves completely opposite. It moves toward deeper dependence upon Jesus. So may we find our deepest satisfaction in dependent relationship with Jesus. Are you in? Yeah? Amen. Let's pray together, and then our song team is going to lead us in a closing song. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are gracious to us. And when we realize that we have nothing, then truly we can confess you are everything. Great are you, Lord. Father, we pray for forgiveness, for falling under the self-deception that I can do something about myself. Please, Lord, deliver us from the tendency of self-help and self-improvement. Yes, we want help. We want to grow, but it only comes through the grace and mercy of Jesus. So today we confess we are poor in spirit. Today we confess our hearts do not know how to mourn over sin. So please lead us to the cross that we can see sin's sinfulness. Fulfill the promise of enmity against sin. God, lead us to a, a humility that truly lays self to the dust and hungers and thirsts for a righteousness that we could never generate on our own. That's our desire today as we follow you in Jesus' saving and precious name, let the family say, Amen. Amen. Amen.